So, um, anyway, so uh, you're very well. You've probably been to lots of sessions already, because I've prepared a sort of 35 minute introduction on the basic epistemological uh, affiliations which existed between the arts and the social sciences, but you've been doing that all day, haven't you? You've all been to other sessions, haven't you? Yes, you have. Yes, all right. Um, so, so, I'll leave all that out. Um, I, the only actually remember I'm at York University. I, 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 do you know what I'm doing? I, I have to sort of mention this. It's a bit sort of vainglorious self-referencing. But at the moment, I'm just full of one-line jokes. You're, you're safe. I'm not going to tell you anything. So I'm doing this thing. I didn't mention it. But I'm doing it for the Red Nose Day, a charity in which they're trying to turn me, a variety of people are trying to turn me into a stand-up comedian, you know, just sort of producing one-line jokes. So my kid, you know, all, I, I just only speak in one line. So, you know, so you're lucky I didn't come and stand in front of you and say, woman knocked on my door the other day and offered me super sex and I said, I'll take the soup. You know, that's, that's, that's the stuff I've been doing for weeks, so I've got to pull, pull myself out of that dimension. Actually, in terms of the relationship between art and the social sciences, I always remember, I mean, York University, where I spent about 75 years of my earlier life you know, teaching, and uh, I remember there was absolutely no relation whatsoever between them. We absolutely bloody hated each other's guts. We couldn't stand each other. I can only remember... We had an economist there, a man called Professor Wiseman. Well, we had two economists there who were both sort of monetarists before Thatcher ever came along, Professor Wiseman and Professor Peacock, Peahen and Wisecock, as we knew them. And they, and they used to, but for Wiseman, he was like a parrot. He just simply used to shout out all the time in the middle of any debate which went on a proper silver or gold or anything like that. He used to go, market forces, market forces, market forces. <laughs> And I remember just thinking about the contact between him and English. There he was from economics. And I can remember one particular professorial board when we were discussing whether or not a creche should be provided for students, you know. And, uh, you know, and then the question came up how we should pay for it. And I remember Wiseman again going, Market Marcy, Market Marcy. <laughs> and I only remember Professor Rockbank, who was a professor of English, very gently saying, he said, It's wonderful, he said, to hear Professor Wiseman, the economist, he said, constantly citing market forces. So I wonder if it would be a possibility that Professor Rock, Professor Wiseman could resign from the university forthwith, he said, and then we could see whether market forces would ensure his re-selection. <laughs> and I have a lovely lark for you, but that epitomizes the difference between the two. And the other Wiseman was famous for, he had a little artistic thing, so he held a seminar, he held a little seminar, and, he, uh, and someone gave a paper on economics, and then he asked people to produce a question from the audience. Suddenly in the middle of the question, Wiseman would shout out, Shelly Keats, Shelly Keats, Shelly Keats. <laughs> that meant, that meant, as I learned, it took me years to learn it, but that meant that the person had given the lecture on Shelley and the person was asking a question on Keats. In other words, they were not being relevant to the subject. So that was arts and social sciences as far as I was concerned at York University. And then, of course, when we got to the 70s or the 80s, we had enormous squabbles. Who owned Bart? Who owned Derrida? Who owned Foucault? You know, we practically fought it out. Got like English members of the English department, members of the sociology were saying, Foucault's mine. We say, no, you bastard, Foucault's mine. <laughs> so there were portions called Foucault in English, and there was Foucault in the social sciences. Violent battles. But of course, here, um, this is an attempt anyway to bridge the gap between the uh, social sciences and the arts. Now, I mean, really, in relation to our topic today, political satire, you know, really, when you go back to the history of political satire, you know, when, when, you, when you look at it historically, really that, that, that gap closes completely. I mean, if you talk about, I suppose if we talk about writers of political satirists, whether we talk about, you know, going back in history, we go talk about Erasmus or Alexander Pope or Jonathan Swift or Voltaire or anything like that, or if we add in, then even great social scientists. I mean, I, I think one of the sort of funniest, most under-acknowledged humorists and satirists 
probably uh, in the pantheon of social sciences, certainly Marx. I mean, Marx is a good laugh. People often forget what a good laugh Marx is because it's taken so seriously. But, uh, and Veblen, what about Thorsten Veblen? I can still pick up a copy of, sort of, of Thorsten Veblen and laugh and roar with laughter at what is going on there. Or Machiavelli, or perhaps de Tocqueville. Here are master political satirists, you know, whether or not they belong in the little rank called English literature, or whether they belong in the little rank called English social sciences, or whatever, hardly matters. And when you talk about art, if you talk about Hogarth, or you talk about Gilray, or Rowlandson, or people like this, these are great figures of the past who have determined the way we think, the way we saw the world. I think, what I'm going to introduce, I think there are a number of questions probably I, that I'm interested in about the whole nature of political satire, and we'll see how many of them come up today. I suppose the biggest one always is, does it make a difference? Does political satire change the world? You know, are governments brought to their knees by political satire? I just want to make a little tiny comment. I just want to be just a little historical thing, and perhaps you've got a historical parallel to this. But I can remember back in the 60s when a programme came on to a BBC called That Was The Week That Was. And you probably hardly anybody in here remembers it. But at that time, the sense of coming home and switching on a programme that was so scurrilous, that was so that was so irreverent, that was, it was suddenly attacking people you thought couldn't be attacked. Suddenly politicians who you thought were above this, or archbishops you thought were, world leaders. Everybody seemed to be under attack. Because the cast of writers who actually met there and performed, that was an extraordinary list. And sometimes, perhaps today, we can almost feel we're a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of political satire that there was. But at that time, to have suddenly people coming along and looking at really rather a closed British society and taking an attack upon it, it changed me. I know we used to run. It was the only program I ever run home to watch. And then every day, the next day, discuss. So in terms, perhaps that's an expansion of consciousness, or whatever you might want to call it. I suppose the other thing we want to talk about are effects, so the limits of effects. How far can you go with political satire? How much can people be offended? How much do we take, how much are we careful to avoid attacking the underdogs? How much does too much political satire undermine the seriousness of the world? So it's impossible that politicians sometimes claim to be able to get on with their jobs properly because really they're constantly being caricatured and undermined by professional satirists. And finally, what about the amount of appropriation that goes on now? All of us who you know, even spend a little bit of time with, you know about the notion of appropriation, the ways in which politicians routinely hang their satirical portraits on the wall, or the ways in which they routinely sit in the front row of uh, groundbreaking political satirical theatre. What about that? And I suppose, how ephemeral? Is there anything as old, is there anything as old or as unwatchable as last week's Have I Got News For You? I mean, they didn't, you know, when I see the programme, Have I Got Old News For You? I think, who on earth can sit down and watch jokes about Blair anymore being made by a Hislop? Well, who can sit down and watch jokes being made by Hislop? But anyway, so, <laughs> so believe that. Let me introduce now our two speakers and get out of the way so that you can hear two people. I'm going to, we're starting off today with, with Alistair Beaton. Um, he's made you, he's made me laugh on television. Um, not only with his contribution, not the nine o'clock news and the spitting image. Drop the Dead Donkey, which I always love Drop the Dead Donkey. I wish I could come, come back again. But his plays, of course, then moved and became an extremely successful prize-winning uh, playwright with plays like Looking at Labour's Spin and play like Feel Good, Blankets, uh, one, a very funny Blankets Affair, a very social secretary. More recently, The King of Hearts, a satire on royalty, the possibility of what might happen if a Muslim decided that a marriage was arranged between a Muslim and our sovereign and our glorious uh, uh, royal family. Satirical novel, as well as Planet of the President, which I haven't read, but I will read now, I know about it. 
very much a stress on people in power, on the gaps between rhetoric and reality. They're always enormously up to date. I think I read somewhere that uh, when he's, one of his plays is running, he rushes in the day before, a piece of topical news has occurred and jams it in so that people can arrive feeling that this is indeed fresh. Um, he's got a new Radio 4 series coming up. starts on the 5th of June with starring Robert Lindsay. Uh, and it's called Electric Inc. and also writing a play for the Old Vic. And he's going to speak to us for around about 15 minutes or so. So would you please uh, welcome Alistair B. Thank you. Well, I'm going to try it without a microphone as well. I guess it's okay if that doesn't be here. If he can do it, I can do it. Actually, Laurie Tiller's got the wrong idea about introductions. They're meant to be very tedious and, and completely dull without a single laugh. And, and then it's a relief when I come on. And I, I can be sort of witty and entertaining and insightful. And he's done all of that. So uh, when I do this again, if I do this again, I'll make sure that Laurie Turner is up in the chair. <laughs> um, I, I want to speak for them at the most for 15 minutes. Perhaps it might even be 13 if you're right up here, 14. Uh, because I want time for us to kick things around and have a good debate and good discussion. Uh, and I don't want to try to be definitive either about what satire is. I want to sort of say what it means for me and how it works for me. Um, maybe a few general rules will emerge, but I don't think it's my job really to lay down the rules. Um, I suppose if, if, if one were wanting to attempt uh, a definition of satire, I suppose you might call it comedy with a purpose. Now, I suppose all comedy is got the purpose of making people laugh, and that's a worthy aim in itself. Life can get pretty miserable, and it's okay to make people laugh. I know I've seen this in the the presence of one of our great stand-up comics. <laughs> um, and I think that is a worthy end. Um, uh, however, um, I'm quite interested in comedy that has got another purpose other than just entertainment. That kind of tries to deconstruct what's going on around us and be a bit subversive. And uh, I suppose I'd like to start by saying what I think satire does not do. I don't think satire creates new ideas. I don't think it's possible to go in and change people's minds if they've never had this thought in their heads before. I think if you're lucky, when you write or create something at the right moment, and it lands just at the right moment, then people recognize something that they've begun to think. You know, after we all elected Blair in 1997, perhaps some of you didn't, but many of us did. Um, we all made mistakes. Um, um, there came a moment when suddenly the doubts began to set in. And that was the moment that, that the feel-good sort of landed, and I think it just hit the public now, which was to say that perhaps this government was so obsessed with uh, presentation that it was losing touch with content a little bit. That was before the Iraq War. Uh, before the Iraq War, we sort of thought the worst thing that Blair could do is just give us too much spin. After the Iraq War, we realized that Blair could lead us into one of the great disasters of the century and lie to the whole population. So there we are. That's not satire. That, is, um, as others have said, is a worthy statement. Um, I'm fascinated with the idea of the way, Laurie, that Das Kapital is a great laugh. No, <laughs> no, no jokes in Das Kapital. Which are the funny bits of Marx, then? The 18th Premier should you laugh. Really? Okay. Perhaps we should do Das Kapital the musical. Picking up on some points that Laurie made in his introduction uh, about how politicians, taking one of your last points actually, how politicians appropriate something. Coming back to that play, the publicist, when we went to the Garrick in the West End, the publicist 
friends in the end. And I, deep down, really hoped that they would not get the players to come to the first night. And because I hoped I'd written something that would make him too uncomfortable to be there. Now, probably the reason he didn't come was he was too busy. But I was, I was certainly relieved he didn't come because I think that, that kind of appropriation of satire, that kind of way that is kind of what I call the, the green room syndrome. You know, you, you're, you're, um, you're in a green room before a TV program or a radio program and you're with some politician and it's all kind of, you're kind of friends. It's as if you all belong together. And it's, it's kind of alive because I don't, I don't really want to be these people's friends. I don't think they've ever asked me to be their friend, but I don't want to be theirs either. Um, the great question, of course, which Laurie's mentioned again, of course, is does satire change anything? And in the end, I suppose, um, we, the answer, the truthful answer is we don't know. Um, but I don't, I don't think, I, I, occasionally I had evidence that some, some, something had been affected. You know, uh, uh, once I got a message from Carol Thatcher that her mom was very, very hacked off at some things I was doing on the radio. And that was just one of the great joyful moments of my life. <laughs> to know that I upset however marginally Mrs. Thatcher, however briefly. A small achievement, but we had to hold on to what we can do. And the other one was when, because I wrote a film which uh, Laurie mentioned, was called The Very Social Secretary about Blunkett. And, um, and uh, in his diaries, he said this film was not a piece of satire, this film was the destruction of a political career. I think he's overstating the case, but again, it was a club feeling that he certainly worked very hard to stop it. His lawyers sent us letters every week for about three months trying to stop the film, but they failed. Um, and quite interesting, I don't know if anyone here saw that film, but it would, what, someone came to me and said, Do you want to write a film of the blanket affair with this unfortunate woman? Uh, and I thought, well, is it is the silly sort of sex wrong? Is, it, is the comedy to be, to be quarried here simply? bit of fun. Um, and I thought, well, uh, man of the people from the north, uh, working class hero, but a man of enormous achievements who uh, overcame his blindness to, to rise to a high office in the land. It's extraordinary, extraordinary achievement. Uh, but it wasn't just an unfortunately chosen lover. This was a rich, right-wing, American socialite that he chose. And I suddenly thought, well, this is a metaphor for new labor, love of money, love of glamour, love of nice food, nice wines, love of wealth, love of celebrity. And that gave me the, 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 the key to the play. I'm not over 15 minutes, am I, Laurie? No, no, no. But this question about, about effecting change, I think there's another whole aspect of satire that is at least as important and, and, and perhaps more important, which is to give heart to people who already feel something similar. Because it seems to me, and this is the starting point that I feel when I'm writing, the starting point is a kind of outrage. Because apparently decent, sensible people, people like us in nice suits, um, uh, they tell us that outrageous things that are being done are basically okay and make sense. And then occasionally, it, it seems to be part of satire's job is to make a step back and and, and, and encourage that kind of childlike moment we have when we think that's wrong. It's just, let's observe what's going on. I mean, we're in the middle of this huge economic disaster and it's full of grotesque absurdities. And that we're all kind of feeling, and some of us have got it all worked out and thought out, and some of us have got it half worked out and thought out, 
satellite can come in and just um, kind of nail Wikipedia and give you heart. It's the same, uh, I don't know if anyone here was on the, how many people, let's find out, who took part in any of the anti-war marches before the Iraq war? Well, a lot, okay, huge number, you know, I was there, as well as most people here. And sometimes you hear people saying, well, it doesn't make any difference. We get a million or two million people in the streets just before the war starts. It doesn't make any difference. But I think one of the purposes of going on a demonstration is to also give one another heart that you may not win the victory immediately, but you're not giving up. And, and there's, there's further hope ahead. And I think that's what satire can do as well, rather than just change things. It can give heart and give hope. Um, Causing offence is, is, is quite, quite an interesting thing. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I had a play on a couple of years ago, and it was touring, and uh, one of the places it was on was Oxford. And there was a question and answer session afterwards. And about the first, <coughs> excuse me, about the first 12 questions were, why do you use the word fuck too much in the play? And, and I, I did begin to wonder, just purely tactically, do you actually, by... by you know, chucking that in, do you kind of lose a certain audience or, or I was torn between sort of feeling metropolitan and snug and thinking, well, those people, they always stupid old farts and why can't we work back without being offended for God's sake? Another part of me thought, well, maybe causing offence on something minor, like an F word, loses you an audience that you would otherwise win over on a bigger point. So how you cause offence is, is really quite important. <coughs> And I also think that um, you have to cause offence for the purpose. You know, I, 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 otherwise it's just sort of cheap. So if you if you have a scene that's really deeply, deeply shocking in some way, I think you have to be really sure as a writer that you know why that scene's there and what it's doing. And I think we live in a very sensationalist culture, and one of the ways you get noticed is by having sensationalist scenes. Um, and in the Dunkin' film, for example, there was a, a sex scene, which we agonized a lot. In the edit, it was in, it was out, it was in, it was out. That's an unfortunate way of expressing it. <laughs> 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 I finally it was left in, and I still to this day don't know whether it was just that bit too vulgar and sexy. Um, finally, I'll just say... Uh, this whole business, I mean, most of my targets are politicians, sometimes named, sometimes types. Um, but I was at a, at a conference last year where Tessa Jowell was uh, speaking, and uh, she directly accused me and a number of other writers there of denigrating this government so much that, uh, and along with programs like the Radio News View and the News Quiz and all that, that uh, people were losing faith in their politicians. Uh, to which my answer was, first of all, I don't think we're that powerful. And secondly, uh, if anybody can cause politicians to lose faith, and for us to lose faith in them, it's taking us into a war on the basis of a lie. And she didn't have much of a comeback to that. And so, um, I would just finally say that I think for me uh, writing satire is an expression of outrage uh, I think it's important that people laugh I hate it when I'm hectored whether it's on the stage or on 
statement that's part of satire. And I think the outrage must be expressed in terms that reach the audience. And that's kind of what I try to do. And I hope that helps get a discussion going later because I'd really like to uh, engage and hear views and maybe even have a bit of an argument. So thank you very much. Well, um, and uh, thank you very much indeed. I just want to ask you, just just, just your idea, you know, that question of offensiveness, you know, because and that's making the parts where you know you, where the central idea is what would happen, you know, if uh, if the heir to the throne marries the Muslim girl. Yes, that's right. Yes, I mean, I'm just thinking about how you prepared for that when you were talking about not being gratuitously offensive or controlling how offensive you were. I mean, how much did you? take trouble to find out how much offence that might give or might cause. To, to whom? To, to the audience. To, I, mean, did you no, I, don't, I don't think it was, in that, it was in that area. I mean, what I did was, because, because Islam was involved and because uh, I didn't know enough, I brought in somebody who was a Muslim who became a kind of advisor yeah. and sat through the last couple of rehearsals and the previews. And because I thought, if I'm going to say anything that's offensive to Muslims, uh, I want it to be because I know I've done it, not because I've blundered into it out of, out of stupidity or ignorance. But the, the, in fact, one of the reasons, I, one of the things I got attacked for in that play, particularly by the Daily Telegraph, which is a, a kind of source of pride, uh, <laughs> uh, was for not being critical enough of Islam in the play. Uh, but for me, the purpose of the play was something other than that. The purpose of the play was, is our liberal culture really when put to the test, able to, to deliver a, a, a liberal viewpoint. Well, um, I've, introduced you, I've, I've introduced Martin so many uh, times uh, in recent years, so I can even remember the blush of embarrassment I got from the first time I introduced him, called him Martin Rousen. I can remember that since I, and he kept danced on me afterwards. Anyway, Martin Rousen, but uh, a person that you, you've come across, you'll know, you'll know his work, whether it's Guardian, or if you've seen it in Time Out, or Spectator. Are you still doing Spectator? Um, they, they transported me. I now believe you're straight in Spectator. And most of all, because uh, Martin regularly uh, provides illustrations, cartoons for uh, magazines which I'm commissioning editor called New Humans. So I've got to know him very well over that, and to, and to know his work, and to know that not only just simply the speed that he works at, you know, how visually arresting it is, how funny, how so often on the spot it is, uh, but, but also really almost about his, his fundamental generosity, not towards the people he's attacking in any way, but, uh, but his generosity towards the causes in which he believes. He so regularly works for very, very little, or in some many cases, nothing for those causes in which he believes. And always very much, these are cartoons which are very much on the side of the underdogs. Uh, <coughs> And I think that I think I've heard him say before. So I just sort of said this in the introduction. I think that if we were in in many other countries in the world, that Martin's work would be would be more respected. And probably would say that he didn't want respect, but I mean the recognition. And I think there is a way in which cartoonists are very much underplayed in this country, which is no argument. I'm sure Martin would want to agree, but deciding to call themselves artists rather than cartoonists uh, in, in order to try to achieve that respectability or that attention which they're otherwise denied. So you'll know his cartoons, but I also just want to mention, you know, that he is the, that, he's, that he's also a great writer, a very, very funny writer. If you haven't read Stuff, which is sort of part autobiographical uh, novel, then I, I, 
series of the reminiscences and stories, and also a great, I mean, you could call it a sort of spoof on Richard Dawkins' uh, book, the, uh, the God Illusion, but the Dog Illusion, the Dog Illusion, which is the title of Martin's book, is a, is a very spirited and wonderful little take on what might be called some of the more simplistic approaches to, uh, to religion and atheism. And then also available outside, you can now go outside and, uh, and, and, and buy Fuck. Uh, Fuck is his latest uh, book. Um, they've managed, I think they've put it in the bookshops by dropping the U down a little, don't they? So it's not quite so much in your face as the only place I can think of at the moment. It's not quite so much in your face, but uh, I, I, it's full of absolutely splendid cartoons, so much so that I, I went along to the gallery and paid quite an ordinary price for it because the gallery was taking 50% of it. But just to prove that these aren't just shallow introductory words, so I, I think we should go and sit in the, in the room because yeah, Martin's going to show some pictures as well. Uh, and he's going to be, uh, you, do you want me to say this or do you want to say that you're going to be abusive? Well, I think we can both say this. Okay, well, he's going to be abusive. Martin. <laughs>
everybody else in the group, to impose his, almost invariably, his will on everybody else and take away their personal autonomy. And what they do is they have lots of different strategies. Uh, they form what Byrne calls coalitions of the weak. And one of the things they use is mockery. They laugh at them. So amongst the com, when a person comes to a guy notes back from me, but belts with an impala over his shoulder, proving what a great hunter he is, they'll say, call that an impala. That's a pathetic impala, you tosser. And then they'll eat the impala. And as I said, what Byrne does is triangulate that this is the, this is the natural state of human beings. And it was until we domesticated plants and animals between 7 and 10,000 years ago. In other words, for around 95% of our time on this planet as a species, we didn't have leaders. We didn't have alpha males. Instead, we had strategies and we had tactics to stop these <coughs> monsters, these tyrants, these despots emerging. And as I said, one of the strategies we used was mockery that we still have this instinctive, and I mean instinctive, urge to mock these fuckers who want to impose themselves and impose their will on us, which is why we have satire. It is a human, a basic human need to mock the priests and the potentates and the popes and the presidents and the prime ministers and all those other people who seek to place themselves in a false hierarchy over us to take away our personal autonomy and to impose their will upon us. And satire, mockery, laughter, a wonderful gift of laughter, isn't necessarily to make them feel worse, although that's part of it. Most of it is to make us feel better. Now, this I'm sure you will recognise is Alistair Campbell, um, who uh, was Tony Blair's communications director and has since then become not only one of the greatest diarists since Pepys but also one of the fin finest novelists since, actually you know, he's a crap novelist he's a crap diarist but that's beside the point now I had a nice gig running for about uh, five years in the Gay Hussar restaurant in London's fashionable Soho which has been the haunt of journalists and politicians for around uh, 50 years where they meet to conspire and to gossip and to get drunk and to eat Central European stodge and I, uh, I had this nice gig running where I asked the manager if I could draw his celebrity patrons in, in order to capture them, to be hung up on them, to capture them during the course of their lunch times. And I did this in exchange for a free meal, and it had a sort of nice bohemian feel about it, when me sitting in the corner, wheezing, consumptively sipping absinthe as I scribbled these glasses. And I used to draw them all from the life. I used to draw them while, while they were there. It was uh, like a cut here, Bresson photograph. There were no sketches made beforehand. The whole thing was very immediate. And there are now 60 of these pictures up on the board of games, and uh, they include uh, the aforementioned Blunkett, who I didn't realise actually having lunch with his heavily pregnant inamorata at the time, so I missed the scoop there. Uh, <laughs> I got, I got uh, Michael Foote, Will Self, I got several people who I was surprised that penned and leap out of my hand and drive themselves through my eyeball when I drew Michael Hesseltine, Michael Howard, and Michael Portillo. And we finally got Campbell. Um, Campbell was interesting because he, he actually demonstrated something to me which I hadn't realised about my craft before, which was that it's actually, again, something very primitive. It is like that urge to laugh at our leaders. It is, very, it is almost a kind of shamanism. Because, unlike everybody else who would just sit there eating and talking to their mates, he sat there glowering at me throughout the whole process of me drawing it. And he even shouted across the room at one point, you just won't be able to stop yourself from making me look like a really bad person 
which I replied, I'm sorry, I draw what I see. But I then realized what I was doing was I was literally stealing his soul. Although he hasn't got one, I was stealing his soul. I was taking the way he presents himself to the world, which is his face, he can do nothing about it except with expensive cosmetic surgery. And I was shape-shifting him. This is the definition more or less of shamanism. I was shape-shifting his shape. I was taking control of him. And he proved this when I took it to him to sign as a true record of him during the course of his lunch. By pushing me back in my place, by dissing me, by saying this is a good picture of Paxman, where the fuck is the one of me? <laughs> but this is how visual satire works. It's about control. It's about evening up the score with the powerful. It's about taking control, shifting their shape. And so once you've established that principle, you can do anything with it. You can set them up in a, in, in a drama of the cartoon's own choosing. So here's a pretty straightforward caricature of Campbell, Campbell spinning Tony Blair. Uh, here he is as a, a gigolo saying, hey baby, if I set you up, will you come in 45 minutes? <laughs> but you can go much further than this. This was uh, a wonderful story at the time of the Queen Mother's funeral, which most people have now forgotten, not the funeral, but the story, where Campbell was rumoured to have been putting pressure on Black Rod to give Blair a bigger role in the funeral, presumably snuggled up against Her Majesty in her coffin, we don't know. And... I remembered that wonderful phrase describing Thatcher's press secretary, Bernard Ingham, as the sewer, not the sewage. And so here is Alistair Campbell as a blocked toilet. Black rod sticking out of it. And this transformatory magic, this shamanism, this shape-shifting goes further, because here we have the man who wrote the story, Peter Edward, the spectator, it's a turd down there. And Charles Clark, who was then the chairman of the Labour Party, got embroiled in the story, and there he is, as a tampon. <laughs> now, another part of satire is not, as people like Ian Hislop pompously say, to punch a pomposity. It's actually about ripping aside the, the raiments of the powerful, of the elite. It's about tearing off the coronets and the robes and showing the shitting, pissing, sweating human being underneath to show that they are just like us. And this is by the great uh, Gilray, James Gilray, uh, doing what satire should do, which is actually rolling around in the gutter and, and loving every minute on it. Uh, this is William Pitt the Younger as Midas in reverse, transforming gold into paper money, but he's shitting money into the Bank of England. And satire has to be about shit. It has to be about sweat. It has to be about showing the sordid and steamy side of life because we need to show the people who assume that they are better than us that they are exactly the same as we are. This is a variation on that, which is um, the crowd failing to shit into the public sector in 1998. Um, and this again was <coughs> Gordon Brown uh, during the 2005 election. It's a pastiche of, of this great cartoon by Gilray, which uh, again shows how satire operates, because this looks like a straightforwardly jingoistic piece after the Battle of Copenhagen between Jack Tarr biffing Bonaparte. Uh, but in fact, if you look at the, the subtitle, which you may, may not be able to see because this desk is in the way, it says Fighting for the Dunghill. Gilray undermines his own image by using text to say you know, it's all over shit. Um, talking of which, uh, the transformative magic, we have, a, we have a Boris here about to uh, shit over London, <laughs> lined with the Evening Standard. And uh, now we have some fat cats. There's a cat uh, shitting over our money. There's a cat. Markets are falling out of my bottom. And there's a cat failing to shit, amazingly enough. Amazing pets, the cat that never shat. 
Uh, here's some cute cats. Just, I realised the other day that fat cats aren't the right image because they're too cute. Uh, so I brought back the capitalist pig. I'm very proud of them. Bring back the capitalist pig. This was a few weeks ago when Slavonet was dealing with the capitalist pig and bringing it to our knees. Uh, even though they're dead, the capitalist pig still eats the, tr still eats the, the money, stands in the trough. Uh, this is from today's Guardian. Uh, this is Sir Fred Goodwin as a, as a dead pig, sort of breaking up the slicing machine. And there is Lord, whatever his name is. Business minister being reduced to a sort of lump of mince through the mincing machine. Um, again, a few pictures of transmitted magic. It's Gordon Brown's a chicken. Gordon Brown is a sort of corpse with uh, vultures pulling his guts out. There's a little can of maggot down there. Uh, Gordon Brown as a, <coughs> as a Damien Hurst installation. Gordon Brown as a burning pier. Gordon Brown as Max Mosley. Gordon Brown as Heathcliff. Coffee, coffee. Fuck off, Heathcliff. Gordon Brown is a sunken ship. You can change them to anything you like. Um, with, this was uh, when Wendy Alexander resigned as leader of the Scottish Labour Party. Uh, Gordon Brown is a Decius. Uh, Gordon Brown is a toad, waiting to be kissed and transformed by Obama. And another, something else we do is we, we take the conventional and we twist it slightly. You, you need to recognise images like this, which is a famous Donald McGill postcard, smutty postcard, and here is a rock. <laughs> is uh, Rembrandt's The uh, Anatomy Lesson. Uh, this is the chairman of the Bank of England, the governor of the Bank of England, on the Anatomy Lesson. That's when they reduce it to 1.5%. Uh, this is Botticelli's Venus, and this isn't. Um, <laughs> we hinted at earlier on the relationship between, between the politician and the satirist. And it's very interesting that most politicians take it on the chin. I mean, Anne Whittacombe, who is a surprisingly nice woman, uh, says that she loves cartoons. She thinks they're just jolly good fun. I interviewed her last summer and said, no, it's assassination without the blood, Anne. We are trying to destroy you. Oh, no, 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 it's jolly good fun. <laughs> um, which is a kind of carapace she has to have. But this kind of material has been a part of the political discourse, albeit a grubby part of the political discourse, for over 300 years in this country. It has been tolerated for over 300 years. And it, was it wasn't tolerated for a century and a half before then, since printing arrived. And it has been current with human beings. Visual satire has been current probably since the first hominid picked up a piece of chart, bark, and started scrawling on a cave wall. Because it is, as I said, shamanism. It's taking control through reproducing, through drawing them again, and then drawing out something about the nature of the person. Um, from one virgin to another, uh, on the subject of offence, the, this cartoon for New Humanist led the well, one of the editorial board of New Humanist to resign in disgust because he thought it was affecting good dialogue between faith and non-faith communities. Um, this one, which I thought was quite a good joke, <laughs> after the Pope died, uh, I, got, I got a sort of shit rain and hate mail about this from Catholics. I don't know. Uh, this one I think is sort of fair comic, putting the fundamental back into fundamentalism. Um, it was a New Humanist, so not many people noticed it. Um, this was as far as I got in a cartoon strip for the Independent on Sunday about the Danish cartoons, which I will deal with briefly because I know I'm running out of time. Um, this is a cartoon I did for The Guardian after the Danish cartoons round broke. Um, and it was the first time in 14 years that it had to be approved by Alan Ruskridge by the editor. Otherwise, I had pretty much free reign on The Guardian. Uh, and the Danish cartoon con controversy was very interesting because... Uh, discuss this further, but 
from my point of view, Jana's Poston was wrong in commissioning those cartoons because they actually broke the golden rule of satire, which was more or less defined by H.R. Mencken when he defined journalism as afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. And Jana's Poston was a right-wing paper which has been running an anti-immigration campaign for decades in Denmark, and they were really trying to make the lives of poor, powerless people even worse than they were already. People who probably clean the toilets and empty the bins of the Irish Postal. Uh, and the response from powerful Danish mullahs who hawked these images and various others around the despotisms of the Middle East almost justified the publication of the cartoons in retrospect, but only almost. And when we're talking about offence, people get offended by images. That's the point of that they are voodoo, they are doing damage to the distance of the sharp object, in this case, a pencil or a pen. But the only really important and truly offensive thing that happened as a result of the Danish cartoons controversy was that up to 100 Muslims were shot dead in the streets of Muslim countries by Muslim policemen because they had been fomented into rioting by Muslim clergy who were trying to increase their own political power. Now that's really offensive. Nothing is as offensive as killing people, believe me. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yes, there are a lot of people who think that anything is offensive. Uh, this is just a picture of David Cameron and Fotheridge and Thomas Pose, uh, just to remind you what Fotheridge and Thomas looks like. This, again, appeared in New Humanist and was the subject of a huge debate on Richard Dawkins's website, where they asserted that it was the most grossly homophobic image any of them had ever seen. Um, partly that was because uh, Dawkins has recently started a campaign uh, called Out. Uh, to encourage American atheists to come out. And he has expropriated the language and the symbolism of gay liberation. Now, I work on the basis that I don't attack people because of their gender, their ethnicity, or their sexuality, because that's them. That's not an opinion. Atheism, even though I'm an atheist, is an opinion. And so the two are not comparable. Gay liberation and atheist liberation are not comparable. And so I wasn't too pleased about him expropriating this stuff. Uh, but all these people said, and they were deeply, deeply offended. They said that I was showing Dawkins as being a caricature of a lip-wristed gay man. Well, actually, if you look at it, you need pretty strong wrist muscles to do that. It's not like that. It's like, you know, it's just a pretty tough thing to do. Other people said, oh, he's wearing sandals, a well-known gay signifier. This is not a homophobic <laughs> image. But atheists on top of Muslims, Zionists, neocons, the list goes on almost infinitely are crying out for the opportunity to be offended because they use it as an aggressive political weapon. If you are offended, it means that what the person has said is unspeakable and therefore should be unsayable and therefore they should shut up, which means you've won the argument because anything that offends you is unforgivable. Quickly run to the end. We're going to use some F words now. Uh, this was uh, about some more fat cats with Ross and, uh, Ross and Brand being bitched in the background. Uh, this appeared uh, last week, Star Fucks. With, um, <laughs> uh, this is from the aforementioned Fuck the Human Odyssey. That's the Big Bang. That's the, that's the uh, uh, Ten Commandments. That's Luther watching the Reformation. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Great Depression coming to a town near you soon. This is the War on Terror. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how I said goodbye to Tony Blair in The Guardian. I was rather pleased with this. Hey everyone, look at these great retirement presents. A fork earth, 
the wool of EU, a fur cuff from Gordon, and fair coffin dye from the grateful people of Iraq, Afghanistan, and all you guys. So I managed to tell Tony Blair to fuck off <laughs> on the page of the Guardian. They were happy with that. And very, very quickly, very, very quickly to end, we started with the gay who's are. This is the uh, drawing I did for the Times uh, on a nice gig I had with them for about four years, where they'd send me out every week to cover some event, which I then turned into kind of Hogarthian tableau. And um, I'd been working very happily with them for about four years, and they got a new Saturday editor, a man called George Brock, I remember that name, who invited me out to lunch. And I'm a freelancer, and I'm very nervous about being taken out to lunch by editors, because it usually means you're going to be sacked. And the first thing he said to me was, don't worry, Martin, this has no bearing whatsoever on your relationship with Times newspapers, which will go from strength to strength seven weeks. <laughs> and then he said, I think in the new compact times, cartoons work so much better vertically rather than horizontally. And I think, I thought, this man's an idiot, but five weeks. And lo and behold, exactly five weeks later, I got a letter from the managing editor saying, they were having problems with the pagination of the new compact times. And they were going to have to move Judy Birchall's column from the second section to the first section of the Saturday Times so with great regret they would have to let me go. So I was being replaced by Judy Birchall's column, which, believe me, is the most humiliating thing that had ever, ever happened to me. Unfortunately, they'd given me two weeks' notice, and this was the last cartoon I did in the Times. Uh, and it was the book launch of the characters in the Gay Bazaar. Of the book of the characters in the Gay Bazaar. And if you sort of, it's a bit like Where's Wallace, if you screw up your eyes, you'll see... Uh, various of the people I drew who are now on the walls of the games are, are, are posed in a service. This is my colleague, colleague and friend Steve Bell and Kevin Maguire of the Daily Mirror, who were posing their arms as like, a sort of F. And there's Kenneth Baker, former education secretary of the Entry Tribune, <laughs> seven as a U, Simon Hoggart as a K, me and Michael Foote, that's a C, and me and Michael Foote as a K. Um, there is a uh, former editor of the People, Bill Haggerty, and uh, Jeffrey Goodman, former industrial editor of the of the mirror as a B, there's the libel lawyer as an R, there's Brendan Barber and Lord Lamont as an O, Ilford Harrington um, uh, as a C, and the publisher of the book and the manager of the uh, London Review Bookshop as a K, a fuck Brock across <laughs> half a page, across half a page of the Times. Because <laughs> they didn't notice, they didn't notice. And I then, I then phoned up my friend Francis Wien on Private Eye and he told the world and apparently they were dancing on the newsroom floor of the Times the day that issue of Private Eye appeared and I will never, ever, ever work for the Times again. <laughs> ever. And the thing is I don't care because I won. Because that's what it's about. I actually won. Brock lost. He took away my money, he took away my job but he lost and I won. And that is basically the secret of satire. We laugh at those bastards who try and rule our lives, and it means we win. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much, Martin. Thank you, Alistair. That's, that's, that's great. Um, I, won't, um, I, I won't speak for another moment. We've got about sort of uh, 35 minutes, which is quite good, so thank you. Uh, 
Um, so let me just ask for any comments. Um, I won't try and provoke any discussion in any particular area. Let's just sort of randomly go. Yes, gentlemen, the second row from the back. When you sit down to write, when you're when you're when you're writing a play, do you, is, that, is that the emotion which seizes you when you think, well, I'm so fed up with spin and what is going on in the name of spin, I'm just angry about it. I'm going to try and make people see through it. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm wishing I was a
it's self-censoring, uh, because, as I said, I, you know, I, I don't believe in attacking people this powerfully. But we're constantly trying, I mean, at the moment, Steve Bell and Rusbridge are having a huge row over the uh, positioning of condoms on lakes of shit in Steve's cartoons in the Guardian. Well, I mean, I, I, in, a way, in a way, one of the reasons I envy the cartoonists, I see I, I was billed out here as political cartoonist, so maybe my wishes are coming true, but it is that, that the, by definition, the genre, and this goes back hundreds of years, the genre you work in it is, is offensive and rude and vulgar and often scatological. And, you know, uh, if you kind of put a deep <coughs> into the West End stage, although there's quite a lot of that, they're mostly musicals, um, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a limit to what you can do with a live audience in the theatre. And I think also there's a limit to what you can do with people who are watching a television film at home. Whereas I think part of the relish of opening a paper and finding a cartoon is the sheer shock of something very in your face and very vulgar. But it's, but it's, also, it's also the nature of the medium. This stuff is actually goes straight to the back of the reptile brain in 13 seconds. <laughs> uh, you have to, uh, you don't have to, probably just sing something on it, but sit through an hour and a half and it's stuff. Whereas maybe you just turn to a sports page if you don't like it. <laughs> it's interesting that business of shock, but just, just finishing the last line on your anger thing, I can remember sort of, I mentioned sort of Jerry, well, Jerry Sadovitz. You know, the comedian, probably some of you have been to see Jerry Sadovitz, you know, who, where the sense of wanting to shock is so strong that if, as it were, nobody in the audience is walking out during his performance, he suddenly turns to another thing. I mean, the last one I saw him a couple of weeks ago, he suddenly said, I'll tell you, he said, oh, I fucking admire him. He said, that fucking McGarvey. He said, he's good, isn't he? You know, and you can see all the people in the audience are thinking, is this too much? You know, I mean, are we going to go along this one? Just that sort of sense. And then afterwards, he said, that really changed it round, didn't he? But he, wanted to, he wanted an assurance that no one was going with him. And if they were beginning to go with him and almost beginning to like him, you know, then he had to throw in. But did you think Jerry Sadowitz is a satirist? I don't think he's a satirist as a comedian. Well, I think, I, I, think he, I think he is a satirist insofar as what he satirizes. When, sat, when he satirizes other comedians more effectively than any other comedian, his satirical observations on, you know, the nature of contemporary comedy, I think, are genuinely... I would call them satirists, but not polit political satirists. But let's move on to another question anyway, which I'm on. Yes, let's have a joke.
cartoons to Anne Whittacombe? Uh, I actually don't bother to write, but, I, but, but it, it is a very interesting relationship. Because as, as I've already said, uh, cartoons have been part of the Christian discourse for 300 years. These people have got to accept that that's what they do. See, as soon as you put your head above the political parapet, as soon as actually you become recognizable, um, unlike John Hutton, for instance, you're going to start, people are going to start drawing you. And, and it's going to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. And the absolutely the worst response is to complain about it. Uh, as, um, what's his name, John Major famously did when he was asked what people were seeing, they'll draw you Major with other hands on the outside. So, I pay no attention until it was an attempt to destabilize my government, which you knew meant you were actually crying yourself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and likewise, uh, I mean, the one time I've had a conversation with Gordon Brown, which was just before the 97 election, when I um, bumped into him at a party and
essentially it was, I, I, I think it was unconsciously racist, which suggests that the cartoonists are probably racist, uh, but also it's just, it just constructed badly, and um, it probably shouldn't have run, in my opinion. I think it was a bit of a mistake. Okay, there's anyone who's put that... Yes, please, yeah.
interestingly doing so quickly, I got a letter the other day, a really letter carefully written out on handwritten paper from Radio 4 saying, Dear, dear sir, addressed to me, I've been listening to you on the radio for the last 35 years and you're crap. <laughs> 35 years. Yes, 
uh, let me, uh, I'm going to go, I think I, I just have a feeling that you've been very, well, I'm, sure, I'm sure I saw your hand up some time ago, didn't I? Yes, please. <laughs> In the middle. Yes, please, you. Yes. an open question. even with 
okay, we have to, I've just settling into the evening, actually. But we have to, we have to stop there. Uh, I, I think we really do have to stop because it's just gone half past uh, uh, four. Um, but can, will you join me in, in thanking uh, Martin? Uh, I'll do that in a second. I've got to get my one-liner over first. got an email last week from someone who said, I was a student of sociology of yours at York in the 60s. I heard you say on your program the other day, I'm glad to be here. I should think at your age, you must be glad to be anywhere. Martin, <laughs> Martin's books are outside. Uh, he's happy to sign them. Uh, there are any places to be signed. Thank you very, very much for your highly intelligent